good morning, everyone. My name is Bill Camp. I am a ruling elder currently on sabbatical here for Metrocrest. Uh, if you'll please stand with me. We're going to open up the Word of God this morning and read from Philippians chapter 3. You may read it out of your own Bible, or it's also printed in your bulletin there for your convenience. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to uh, be with us this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be present to teach and to instruct, to guide and to lead. And we pray that we might not only learn something from this text, but that we would be able to apply it to our lives and be changed by it. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. We can't fathom it today because uh, we're so used to modern conveniences and modern forms of travel. But many years ago, one of the most common methods, if not the only method, of tra traversing great seas and oceans was by ship. And one would try to take whatever one could aboard the ship. Of course, you had to have the usual stores of food and water and all the normal supplies. But if you were leaving your homeland and perhaps venturing off into another homeland, you might need to take some other items with you as well. Clothing, perhaps small items of furniture or items that had sentimental value to you or things you wanted to take with you. As long as the ship encountered good seas and good weather, you could feel relatively safe and secure that you and your possessions would make it from point A to point B. However, as was often the case, you might come into a terrible and fierce storm with no modern methods of predicting the weather, with no modern charts to try to avoid some of the, the normal patterns of uh, dangerous sea travel. People were at the mercy of God, ultimately casting themselves off into the unknown and hoping that they would arrive safely at their desired destination. But there would be those times when a terrible, fierce storm would come up, when the rain would fall, when the wind would blow, when there would be so much danger and threat to their lives that people were panicked. We see that in the case of Jonah in the Bible whenever he was traveling and when God sent a fierce storm and the sailors did everything they possibly could to either return to their port or to try to find some way to get away from the storm. And with no choice, they finally decided they had to lighten the ship. Paul experienced this later on too in the book of Acts whenever he had to give orders that they should lighten the ship. and They began to cast out whatever they could, whatever form of ballast, whatever thing wasn't absolutely necessary. 
And sometimes it became so important for the salvation of their lives that they had to cast out everything, leaving nothing but perhaps a small amount of food and water. All had to be cast overboard. Perhaps here was a merchant who was bringing his wares to some foreign port where he hoped to sell them and make a fortune. And all of those must be cast out because now suddenly there is one consuming desire. Save my life from the storm. The sea will be a certain watery grave and I must do whatever it takes to get rid of these things that will not profit me if I go to the bottom of the ocean. This is what moves Paul. This is what goes through his mind as he writes these things. You will find, first of all, today that uh, this sermon is probably very similar to the one I delivered just about a month ago. Martin Luther said, I preach the gospel to my people every week because every week they forget it. There are some people who need to hear the gospel. Because they're unsaved, they're lost, and they desperately need to hear this message. That your sins will certainly damn you, and that there's only one way of salvation that God has provided, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the sole hope of salvation. Look to him and be saved. There are some people who think they know the gospel, but have yet to truly encounter it, and truly encounter the Christ of the gospel. For them, the gospel is wrapped up in their church attendance and their knowledge of the scriptures and the fact that they've attended Sunday school and gotten stars for, for perfect attendance and that they've done all of these things and have been good people and have been good at, at trying to follow the law and doing what's right. And they desperately need to hear the gospel that your goodness is just a... But there are other people who are keenly aware of the gospel who are keenly aware of their own sinfulness, for whom they are, these people are crying out, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. They need to hear the gospel again and again and again. I need to hear the gospel. I need to hear what Jesus Christ has done for me. And don't think this is a theme only for this life. In Revelation, when we get to see the saints gathered around the throne of Christ, what do they do? They call out to him, worthy are you, O Lamb of God, for you were slain for us and have redeemed us unto our God and made us kings and priests unto our God. This is the theme of time and all eternity. We need to hear the gospel. This text could actually be expanded upon with verses before and verses after. But since my sermon doesn't need to be expanded upon, I shortened it to these four verses so that I may not tarry too long this morning. But Paul is dealing with the theme of how can one be made righteous before God? This is a theme that plagued Martin Luther, whom I mentioned earlier. On October 31st, uh, All Hallows Evening, uh, all Halloween as we call it, uh, that was also the day that marks the time in which Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg and unwittingly began the Reformation, set in motion things that would be unstoppable. But this was something that plagued Martin Luther. How can a soul be made right with God? He sought daily to find peace with God. 
going to the confessor time and time and time again and spending hours till the confessor became wearied with them and said, Martin, either find a new sin to commit or stop coming to me. He would flagellate himself, whip himself all night long till the other monks would come into his cell and find him unconscious in a pool of his own blood. And after all of these things, his mentor, John Stoppett, said, Brother Martin, you have to learn to just love God. And Luther replied, love him. I could almost hate him. He saw God only as this terrible avenging force who was hell-bent on his destruction. And how could he possibly get free from this weight and burden of his sin? How could he possibly stand before this holy God? How could he be accepted in his presence? Luther found the answer in Paul's writings in the book of Romans. The Romans, the just shall live by faith. And he said, it was as if the gates of heaven swung open and I walked in. Paul went through his own moment like that. Only from the opposite side, he didn't see a sin. He saw only his self-righteousness. He was confident that he was a good man. That he was obeying the law of God. He says in the verses preceding these that he was blameless as touching the law of God. Not blameless before God himself, but blameless before the eyes of his fellow peers. They looked up to him and respected him, acknowledged that he was indeed a good man and a good Pharisee and a good religious leader. Paul had much to boast of and much reason to embrace his self-confidence and say, I have done enough. God will surely accept me. All of these things, Paul writes in verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I... I wanted to lay that foundation because I want you to see here that Paul is not speaking about his sins. He's speaking about his good deeds. Augustus Toplady, the famous preacher who also wrote the hymn Rock of Ages, once said, trust in my good works to save me. I would sooner trust in my... Paul isn't speaking about his rebellion against God. He isn't speaking about his depravity. He's speaking about his good deeds. And he says, all of these things that gave me the aura, the appearance of being a good man in the eyes of others are profitless before God Almighty. And so therefore, I count them all as loss, as rubbish. Here was his tally sheet. And over here on the asset side, he had that he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, of the seed of Abraham, circumcised the eighth day, a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. All of these were on the asset column. And he said, no, that's not where they belong. I've since moved them from asset to loss. Because there's one thing now that I want to press on for, and that is Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he is worth the loss of all. The ship is going to sink. I must cast out this stuff. It's all rubbish. It won't help me. 
It won't save me on the day of judgment. It won't help me to appear before a righteous and holy God who will certainly judge me for what I've done. And so therefore, I count it all as loss. Toss it over to the side. Get rid of it. He uses the word rubbish. People have debated for centuries now, does that mean dung? as it used to be translated, or simply trash and refuse. But the whole point, regardless of what it means, is that there is nothing worth hanging on to. It's trash. I ought to get rid of it because there's no good in it, and nothing can come from it. Self-confidence has damned many a soul to hell and has never led a single person to heaven. Paul said, I was confident in these things, but what does Paul look for then? I rarely have this kind of alliteration going on, but redeemer and righteousness. As he looks for a righteousness that is, in the Latin, extra nos, outside of us. A righteousness that is not our own. A righteousness that is foreign to us. That is not inbred. That is not inherent within us. He looks for righteousness from another. If you're not a theological egghead, you may have never heard of the new perspectives on Paul. Uh, there's something that goes on in theology, in theological circles, where people are saying that we need to rethink what Paul thought about justification before God. That Luther, with his heavy hand and his heavy influence, may have actually misdirected us and led us in the wrong direction. And we need to, to reconsider how Paul looked at this. As I study this passage, I'm sorry, I don't see how one can arrive at a conclusion that says, Paul's, then Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, to make him righteous and holy. But we are driven by the novel. We are intrigued by that stuff which we haven't heard before. We're studying through the book of Acts in our care group. And when Paul was in Athens, the people spent their time there in the marketplace day and night just longing to hear something new. It's our human condition. Don't tell me the old, old story. I've heard that stuff before. I want to hear something fresh and something new. Let me tell you something. There is nothing new to the gospel and that old faith that Paul preached, that Luther and Calvin and Knox preached, is the same faith that I must preach. Or else I would be untrue to God. When you read this text, there's no way that you can arrive at any other conclusion than this. That Paul said, I have cast aside everything that could have been gained for me. So that I may receive one thing. A righteousness that is outside of me, that is another's, that is freely given to me as a gratuitous gift. Purely gratuitous gift. So that I may stand before a holy God in the righteousness, righteousness that belongs to someone else. Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous in and of himself. And his wonderful work back, believe it or not, around the year 1000, Anselm. Uh, wrote a book called Cur Dies Homo, Why, Why the God-Man. And in it, Anselm said that Jesus had a righteousness that was his own because he was God. He had a righteousness that was his as a man. And, and he had a righteousness from the union of the, uh, of the deity and humanity into one person. 
But he had another righteousness that he earned through perfect obedience to the law of God, never sinning, never disobeying him. And it's this righteousness which he freely imparts to the saint who dares to trust in him alone for salvation. This is the righteousness that Paul looks for. And that's why he says in the last half of 9, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He contrasted it with the earlier part of the verse, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. There is a righteousness that Christ imparts to the believer who trusts and clings to him alone. And this righteousness is what God uses to declare as the judge of the universe that you are not guilty. That you are innocent. That you are sin free. Because he sees in you and on you covering you the righteousness of another of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the supreme sacrifice who obeyed the law of God and who suffered the punishment for our sins. It is only through Christ that I may be received before the presence of God. It is only through trust in Him. I toss aside everything else, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Only Christ can wash me. So I come to him. I don't want new perspectives on Paul. I'm quite content with the old ones. I'll go in the gate the same way as Luther, Calvin, and Knox, and hundreds and thousands and millions of others have entered through Christ. And Christ alone. And then I want you to see something else here. Back to verse 8. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth. The, he likes to use these sorts of passing worth. It's not enough for Paul to say of the great worth or the, he has to go above and beyond in trying to describe Christ. And you want to know why? Because human language fails us. One of my greatest frustrations anytime I've tried to preach or teach is that I can't declare to you properly who Jesus Christ is. I try so hard to craft the right words. I try so hard to reach for the right vocabulary. I try so diligently to figure out some way to convey, and sometimes through a bit of passion you may have noticed, Try, try to convey some sense of wonder and awe of the beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the bottom, at the end of it, I have utterly failed. I can't declare to you how glorious he is. I can't make him as beautiful before your eyes and hearts and minds as he really and truly is. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And when he says knowing, this isn't just knowing about him. It, doesn't, uh, it, it also includes knowing about him. We don't want to exclude that. But it's not just knowing about him. We should want to learn about him so that we may know him better. Those of you who are married, when you were first dating your spouse, uh, likely you went through a time of wanting desperately to know more about them. I wanted to know more about my wife. Where did she come from? Where did she grow up? Who were her relatives? 
What kinds of foods did she like or dislike? Uh, what, what, what did she consider sweet as, as an action for me? I wanted to do everything I could to try to please her, to try to, try to tend to her needs, to care for her once. I wanted to do everything I could to learn about her. But it wasn't just so I could have a list that I could check off of, well, I know this, and I know this, and I know this. I know she's got brown hair and brown eyes. I know she likes these types of food. I know she likes this place for vacation. No, I wanted to know about her so that I could know her as a person, intimately. We should want to know Jesus. In the Bible, sometimes the word knowledge is used For intimate love. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. The foreknowledge there is not just that he knew them beforehand. It's a a knowledge of love. Jesus, remember, on the day of judgment, will say to the one group, come, my beloved father, to the other group, the goats, he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Not know them. He knows them better than they know themselves. He can take off every sin, sins they've forgotten, sins they weren't aware that they committed. He knows every aspect, every detail. He has the hairs of their heads numbered. He knows everything about them. But he says, depart from me, I never knew you. This is a special love of God that he sets upon his elect. He knows them. And in turn, we are supposed to know him. The greatest thing you can ever achieve in this life is not worldly notoriety or fame or applause of men. The greatest thing you can ever achieve in this life is to come into a more intimate knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I sense with the apostle here a longing, a passion, a drive, a desire, an insatiable longing within his soul to know Jesus. To actually know his Savior. If you ever have a chance, you can come across a book. It's not very thick. Of Samuel Rutherford's. It's his uh, letters. Whenever I read them, one of the things that struck me the most about him. He's a Scottish covenanter. He lived in the 17th century during what they called the killing times. When uh, the Church of England sought to stamp out Presbyterianism in Scotland. And those who uh, withstood the Church of England were labeled as covenanters. Uh, they, they wanted to stamp it out, eradicate it, wipe it out, and so they were, they were hell-bent on destroying as many as they could and killed many covenanters. Uh, Samuel Rutherford would have been a martyr himself, but he had been exiled to Aberdeen, the far north of Scotland, and left in a cold, damp cell, had become terribly ill. And when they summoned him to come to court down around Edinburgh somewhere, uh, he, he wrote, I will not be able to wear the martyr's crown. But his books, his letters just breathe a love for Christ that struck me whenever I read them because I realized I didn't have that same love. Here was a man for whom Christ Jesus was not only and I thought, God, give me this desire. Move upon me so that I may long for Christ. That I may be satisfied with nothing and no one short of him. The greatest thing you can ever aspire to as a human being is to. He said elsewhere that all who will live godly. Suffering is a part of being a Christian. We haven't experienced much much of it. 
It's not the same for our brothers and sisters across the globe. Throughout Africa, in Ethiopia, and Egypt. Throughout the Middle East, in Iran, and Iraq, and Afghanistan, other places. Throughout communist regimes like China and North Korea, there are Christians who know what it means. For whom they do not have the freedom to worship. I came to church to be encouraged. Paul doesn't talk about sharing in his sufferings. So I want to share in his sufferings. I want to suffer with Christ. Because I have a greater aim beyond the sufferings. We don't do this because we enjoy pain and torture. And humiliation. And being cast out. We do this because we reckon that the prize that lies before us is of greater value than anything we have. Paul says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the Paul wanted to suffer with Christ so that he would also. This is a great hope of the Christian faith. Yes, when we depart, we get to go to be with Jesus. Our spirits are immortal. The body they may kill, God's word abides still. So, even if they slay us, our spirits will go to be with Christ Jesus. But a disembodied state is not what God has intended. There will be a day of resurrection that we can look forward to. I hope you haven't done this. I, I did. I made the fatal mistake trying to comfort people years ago and saying, don't worry, that's just a shell in the coffin. They're still alive and they're with Jesus. It's all good. Those words ring hollow when you actually experience death for yourself. Pious platitudes don't really work. When I was 27 years old, I was at work in my wife called me and she said Bill I don't know how to tell you this but your dad was involved in a car accident and he's dead that was the first time I had lost someone very close to me we have a picture at his funeral I hope preach his funeral and, and at the graveside after I delivered the final closing words and people began to disperse my oldest daughter, who was just under five at the time, walked over and, and suddenly it just all began to sit up on her. And she saw the coffin perched on that little rack. And I walked over and wrapped my arm around her. I watched a show one time. I was flipping through these. And they allowed cameras to kind of follow them through the. They were Roman Catholic, and so they're clinging to the. But he laid upon her chest, and he could barely move, but his eyes were just looking up at her face and gazing at her. And you could tell this was this whole world. He looked to his mother and just loved her. And they spoke about how the house had gotten dirty and unkempt. There would be plenty of time to clean it afterwards. She said, I just want to hold him every last moment I have with him. After the funeral was over, they spoke to her again. She said, you know, the thing that hurt the most People who meant well, who came up to me and said, don't worry, that's just a shell. He's in heaven with Jesus. She said, I believe he's in heaven with Jesus. But I didn't see his spirit. I saw that tiny little body. 
I brushed that hair out of his face. I kissed those little cheeks, and they were gone forever. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't ever want to say that again. Who's lost a loved one? Death is a horrific enemy. It's a terrible foe. To think about bodies that decay and return back to the dust from which they came is horrific. Paul says, I want to share in his suffering and I want to share in his death. But there's a reason. Because beyond the grave, there is still a hope. The Lord himself shall return with the shout of an archangel, with the voice of a trumpet. And the Lord himself shall call forth the dead to come back to life. The same Jesus who stopped the coffin for the widow of Nain's son and said, Arise! The same Jesus who walked into Jairus' daughter and told her, Little maid, get up! The same Jesus who stood outside the tomb of Lazarus and they said he's, he will be, have begun to stink. He's been dead for four days. We can't roll back the stone. Roll it away anyway. And who said, Lazarus, come forth. The same Jesus who suffered and died himself is this, and came back to life is the same one who will return one day and who will say, not Lazarus come forth, but come forth. And every grave shall split open and every last molecule shall reassemble itself and that dust shall re resume its normal form and be transformed into a beautiful new heavenly body. And they shall rise from the grave to be reunited with their souls. And so we shall live with God forever and ever and ever. The fact is, though, that the resurrection will encompass not just God's people, but all people. Some will be raised to judgment and eternal death. But what if somebody out here isn't? The day of resurrection hastens on. The day of your death hastens on. Who knows how much time you have. I would have thought my dad would have lived well past 48 years. He didn't. Who knows how much time you will have. Today is the day of salvation. Do not push it off. Do not say there's always tomorrow. You don't know that you have tomorrow. Today is the day to get right with God. Today is the day to seek his face. Today is the day to come and say I cast everything aside and count all things but loss. One thing I press on for knowing Jesus Christ, being found in him. He is a city of refuge. He is the ark of safety. He is the only one that will preserve me from the storm that is coming upon this world, the fury and wrath of the Almighty God. He is the only one who can save me, and I want to be found in him. And the only tears that will be cried will be tears of joy in Christ.